Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. We're picking up where we left off last week, which I'm really excited about. This is God's word. Let's read it. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them and gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed. And has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road. And how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God Almighty. Please Lord. Today. Today if we were to hear your voice. Let us not harden our hearts. Lord, let us stop treating this story casually. Lord, may it impact us in a massive way. Lord, I pray that we would we would marvel at the power of your resurrection. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's try this one more time. He is risen. 
listen, this is the greatest truth that there is. I know we hit this last week, but I need you to get this. Um, if, if there were one story in the Bible that if, if I were given the opportunity, it hasn't happened, but there's a part of me that really still hopes it might happen. If I were given the opportunity to time travel, and, and I could just pick one moment, and I got to have a translator so I could understand what they were saying, it would be this story. This is where I would go above everything else in the Bible. Now, it's a toss-up for me because I really kind of would like to see where Elijah called down fire from heaven and then killed all the prophets of Baal because that's a pretty cool story too. But this one is pretty significant because Jesus, on a seven-mile walk, opens up the Old Testament for these two people that we don't really, we know one of them is named Cleopas. We don't know who the other one is. We know for about seven miles, it actually says in the Bible, it's 60 Roman stadia, which is roughly seven miles. For seven miles, he starts with Moses, which doesn't mean he starts with the story of Moses. It means he starts with Genesis because it's attributed to Moses that he wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, come on, help me. Exodus, I guess. All right, so that's called the Torah. Everybody say the Torah. So when, when, when it says Moses, that's what it means. It's talking about those five books. And he's saying he started with Moses and all the prophets. And we know that he also uh, refers to the Psalms as well, because after this, in the next chapter, he, he says it's out of the Psalms as well. So Jesus, for seven miles, they don't know, they don't know that this is him. He, he's, he's blinded them to be able to see that it's Jesus. And he walks them for seven miles and just breaks down the truth of the Old Testament and how all of this was really about him. I mean, all of it, everything in there. And so this actually, I'm excited. We're going from Easter, going to this story. This is going to launch us for the rest of this year. Primarily, we're going to be in the Old Testament grabbing some of these stories and looking at these stories and finding Jesus and the story of God's redemptive love for us in the whole thing, because what you need to know is it's not 66 random books that some people decided to randomly put together. This is God-ordained, God-breathed, God-inspired word of God that is about him, not about you, about him and about his redemption of you. And so we're going to kind of survey this story today. It's going to launch us into um, the rest of the year looking at many of these stories in the Old Testament. And so our main idea for this morning is the resurrected Jesus shows us how all things in Scripture point to His glory. So it starts out uh, in Luke 24, 13, that very day. It says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So when it says that very day, it's on Resurrection Sunday. What you need to notice is uh, Jesus sticks around for a little while in resurrected form. And as he sticks around for a little while, a lot of his first appearances are on Sundays. And so I, I, I understand why we, we meet here on Sunday. Understand Sunday is not the Sabbath. When the Bible talks about the Sabbath, Saturday is the Sabbath day, which is where you have the Seventh-day Adventists have like their real sticklers about well, we're going to meet on the Sabbath. The reason the first century church, so they, they initially moved from worshiping on Saturday to Sunday because of this, because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, visited people on a Sunday, and so we, that's the day that we meet to gather and celebrate his resurrection. So really every Sunday for us is Easter Sunday. 
every Sunday is Easter Sunday. And so what we have here is on a Easter Sunday, but it's not just Easter Sunday. This is actually, this is just, this, this day is so significant. The, the minutia of connection that Jesus gives constantly is mind-blowing. Because here's what I want you to catch. Passover's been going on. Now, Passover, what is Passover about? Passover is a Jewish holiday that recognizes back when the plagues were coming through Egypt to free the Israelites out of Egypt, and the 10th plague was what? Anybody know? The death angel passed over the firstborn of each household. And so God went to the Jewish people and what did he, he told them that there was a way that they could not have the death angel come. They had to take a lamb. They had to sacrifice that lamb. That lamb had to die. Catch this. That lamb had to die so that their firstborn son in their house wouldn't. Someone was going to die in every single house in Egypt. But God provided a way for it to not be us. And so he had a lamb in the place, which is why when we call Jesus the lamb of God, that's where that comes from, that idea. And so you had to kill that lamb and you had to take the blood and you had to put it on your doorpost. And if you put that blood on your doorpost, then the death would not come to your home on your firstborn. And so they're celebrating Passover and how God provided this way for them at the same, catch this, at the same time that Jesus, the lamb of God, stands in our place so that for eternity we don't have to be in constant separation from him and the torment of hell. It's what we've earned. And the sacrificial lamb stands in our place. And so they're celebrating Passover. But here's what happens. Here's what's significant. On that Sunday, on that Sunday after Passover, it was the day that you brought your first fruits to the, the tabernacle. To the, to the temple. You brought your first fruits of worship post-Sabbath. Catch what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. This is the day. The first fruits day. But Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as man came, for by, as, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made all, all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. See, this first fruits was a promise of what was to come. And so Jesus... On that Sabbath, on that Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the one right after Passover, where he's just been the sacrificial lamb, and now he is the first fruits of the resurrection on that day. So on the day when the lamb has to die, Jesus died. On the day of first fruit, Jesus doesn't just bring fruit. Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, which means the resurrection doesn't just stay with him. It means the resurrection now belongs to you. As a child of God, you have the opportunity to have the power of the resurrected Christ in your life today. That gets an amen, please. Here's what we've got to get from what we talked about last week and this week as we continue. This story is not something to be treated casually. And I'm begging you, I begged you last week, I'm begging you this week to catch what's going on here. 
there's an analogy. I used it in Bible study group this morning. It's, it's, it's been used by so many pastors. I've probably even used it in here before. I don't know who the original credit goes to, but it applies very well here. If, if service started a little late because I wasn't here, and Caleb was like, um, where's Jimbo? And Chris was like, uh, I'll get a sermon ready, I guess. And they were, everybody's freaking out. They don't know where I'm at. And then, <clears throat> so Caleb just goes up there. Chris is cramming a sermon in together. Caleb gets up here. He starts leading worship. Come time for me to, to go. He prays, and I, I just walk in. And I go, I got this, I got this. Hey, guys, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I'm late. Um, I was on my way here this morning, and I got T-boned by a semi. I mean, just railed me. I mean, I was coming through an intersection. It just caught me. You wouldn't believe me, would you? Why would you not? You wouldn't believe me because there's no way I would come in here just walking normally, no blood, no bruises, no impact, and just normally walk. There would be more impact to my life than me just being late to the service, right? And yet, and yet, We talk about the story of the God of the universe who the Bible says we were hostile enemies against. And because we were hostile enemies against him, because our sin has earned us death, and because of his great and unbelievable love, he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come down in the form of a vulnerable human being. I'm going to leave the glory of heaven and I'm going to come down here and I'm going to be a vulnerable baby and I'm going to grow up as a human and go through all the trials, temptations, and limitations of being human. And I'm going to live a perfect life that I wanted you to live, but you weren't capable of doing it. And because you weren't capable of doing it, you and I can't have a relationship anymore. But I don't want that. As God, I want to have that relationship with you. So I'm going to let the Jewish religious leaders turn me over to the Roman government and put me through the most extreme form of torture and murder and execution that has ever been known to man, which, by the way, I predicted in detail thousands of years ago would happen. And then right before, I'm going to tell my disciples, here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man will be taken and he'll be turned over to the Gentiles and he'll be flogged and he'll be beaten and he'll be executed. But on the third day, he'll rise. And then he did it. And then he did it. Guys, this is either far more significant than being hit by a semi, or it's the most useless made-up story that's ever been. Somehow, we find ourselves landing in the middle here. Somehow, we find ourselves treating this casually like some extra part of our life. But here's, the, here's where it gets really good, and I want you to get this. It is true, and because it's true, Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And because Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, you have the power of God in you, the Holy Spirit. If, if you are a child of God, if you are a follower of Christ, a disciple of His, you truly have put your life in His hands. The Holy Spirit resides in you, the God of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. His home is right here in you. And that, listen, 
whatever, whatever you're struggling with, with your identity and who you are about where you work and how smart you are, how good looking you are, or if people like you, or, or you're worried about people figuring out the, the bad things about you. And so you, you pretend around people, or you constantly feel like you, you've been dealt this bad hand in life and, and you don't know why things keep going bad for you. There is a hope that the God of the universe The God of the universe is inside of you and he has the power of the resurrection to guide your life and it cannot get any better than that because he is the first fruits of the resurrection and we cannot continue to be distracted by civilian affairs. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, not distracted by civilian affairs so that you could please the one who enlisted you. Listen, this is the fact that the God of the universe resides in you. It ought to be far more impactful to every aspect of your life than being T-boned by a semi. It ought to be unbelievable. You know Why? You know why the church is flourishing in persecuted countries? Because they don't have a choice of treating this casually. It's not an option. It's not an option when, when you realize, hey, if I get baptized publicly and I profess Christ, there's a good shot I'm going to get killed or there's a good shot I'm going to be kicked out of my family and disowned by everybody. I'm going to lose my job and all these things are going to happen. You start to really weigh out what it means to follow Christ and you start to really count that cost as Jesus asked us to earlier in the Gospel of Luke. You start to see that maybe maybe I need to count what's going on here, but we've created this cultural, comfortable, complacent Christianity that you can just so easily commit to without it ever costing you anything. And when we do that, when we do that, I want you to catch this in the story, our hope is misplaced in the things of this world and we will miss the very God of the universe as he walks before us. Let's continue in the story. Jesus draws near to them. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So Jesus shows up. Something significant about the way that Luke writes. Starting back towards the end of Luke chapter 9, from that point to here, from Luke 9, we're in Luke 24. For for that distance of Luke, it's constantly about this idea of travel. It's constantly about this idea of, it's, it's always about Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to Jerusalem. And then even with everybody else, everybody else in the story, it's about travel, it's about travel, it's about travel. And it's significant here that now, what does it say? They stood still. They stopped. It says looking sad. Sad's maybe not the best word to translate here. It's it's difficult. It's it's, it's stunned, shocked, befuddled, stupefied. This is massive what has just happened in Jerusalem. And this guy, they don't know who it is, walks up to Cleopas and whoever's walking with Cleopas and goes, hey, what are you guys talking about? They stop. Luke wants us to catch that. They stop. And they go, what do you mean? What are we, 
what are we talking about? What do you, what do you mean, what are we... Are you the only person who came to Jerusalem? Now, if you were on your way into Jerusalem, maybe I'd get it, but you were there. You were, you're walking away from Jerusalem. You were in Jerusalem. You're telling me you haven't caught what all's happened? Jesus doesn't say, no, I don't know what happened. He just goes, what, what things? What things? You, you tell me. What, what things? What, what is it that you have observed here as Jesus draws near to them? Verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas is the only one we get their name. Some people say the other one is his wife. Some people say it's just another disciple. We don't know. They say, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So they lost hope. They had hope, but they lost hope. Luke 24, 19 through 24, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet. When they say prophet, they don't mean, they don't, the way they're using the word prophet doesn't mean one who predicts the future. They're saying someone with the spiritual authority over the word of God. <clears throat> to, to have written, for Moses to have written what he wrote, he was a prophet. For Isaiah, for some of that is foretelling, but some of that is just speaking out what God says. And so they're saying, Jesus was a, a prophet, not just a prophet, but he was mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. I mean, this guy shook things up. This guy healed people. This guy, there was a guy dead. Lazarus was dead, and now Lazarus is alive. One of my favorite stories, there was a guy who was blind since birth. Jesus spits on some mud, rubs it in his eyes, tells him to go wash and that guy can see now. I love that story because this guy, when he gets inquisitioned by the Jewish leaders, his response is beautiful. I don't know who the guy was. You're asking, is he a prophet? Is he? I don't know. All I know is I've been blind since the day I was born, and today I can see. And they say, are you saying this guy's greater than Moses? He's just, and this guy's insinuating, I never heard about Moses making anybody see that was blind. I'm just saying I was blind, and now I can see. That's, that's getting hit by a semi-truck. Jesus did this. Everywhere he went, he made this massive impact. And these guys say, listen, this was a prophet who wasn't just claiming some things. He didn't just get a following. He didn't just have some nice, pithy little sayings that would be good tweets. This guy shook things up. And then our chief priest... Verse 20, and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And the verse 21 is one of the saddest openings to a verse. But we had hoped. We had, past tense, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Man, we had hoped. We just knew. Man, this guy did so much. We just knew. We knew he was going to be the one to redeem us. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. They lost their hope. And they lost their hope because in Jewish tradition, after the third day, the spirit leaves the body. And it's fully dead. It's fully separated, spirit and body. And so they're going, look, this guy, this guy did things nobody else has ever done. 
And so, man, we had all of our hope that he was going to be the one to redeem us. He was going to be the one to overtake the Roman government. He was going to be the one to bring us into this position. But then the chief priest delivered him up to be executed, and he's been dead, and now it's the third day, so it's over. And then they say, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, They had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Look at their takeaway from this. I need you to catch this. So a couple of things I need you to catch of what's going on here. They said some of those who were with us, which means that categorizes these two people as disciples of Jesus Christ. Like they were in with the twelve. Now the 11, because Judas is gone. They're in with the 11. They know them. These people know that the 11 know that the 11 are the inner circle. The 11 know who they are. They know who the 11 are. These are people who have, we don't know for how long. We know these people have been following Jesus. They've seen these amazing things, that he was mighty in deed and word. And yet, when these women say that they've seen these angels... And they've heard that, that he was alive, but then they go, but guys went and found him, and they couldn't find him. I mean, he wasn't there. His body's not there. Catch this. They've been through all that, and their response is hopelessness. I think sometimes we, we think, God, I'll give you everything of my life if you'll just show me that you're real. And if you'll just take care of this bill, if you'll just get me this promotion, if you'll... If you'll give me a spouse, I don't have to be single for forever. If you'll do this, if you'll, if you'll do this thing, Lord, if you'll show, if, Lord, if you could, God, if you could do this miracle, I would just know. Then I would know you're the real deal. And man, I'd give you my whole life. I'd give everything to you. We see it in the Old Testament with the Israelites. The miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet what they do is grumble and complain. We see it with these two disciples. These two disciples have seen. They're just talking about how amazing Jesus was. They, 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 listen, they didn't just get testimony that Jesus was dead. They've been told by somebody, I went to go take care of Jesus' body. He wasn't there. There were angels there. And those angels said that he was alive. Man, this is hopeless. I need, when you hear things like this, it's a temptation to go, those idiots. When you hear things like this, I need you to look in the mirror. I need you to look and see. God will not do something so big in front of you that you'll be convinced. When your hope is misplaced in the way that you want to define redemption. You know why they missed him? They never thought he was going to rise from the dead. Their idea of the Messiah was so much smaller. It was just taking over the Roman government and putting the Jews in in, in a place of prominence politically, socially. That was their idea. Their idea is this is what the Messiah will do. And so when the Messiah didn't go the way that they had placed their hope, No matter what miracle they saw, it wasn't enough. So often we will miss 
God in front of us when our hope is misplaced in other things. Listen to me. If your hope is in anything, anything other than Jesus, it will fall short. It will fall short. If it's in your marriage, I don't care how good your marriage is, your spouse is a horrible God. If it's in your job, I don't care how successful you get, show me people that have gotten the money they wanted and felt like they were done. When they asked Rockefeller what his favorite million was, you know what he said? The next one. He was never satisfied. The things that we think will bring us hope will never satisfy us. We misplace our hope all the time. In religion, in church being the way we want it to be, in all sorts of things, we misplace that hope. And we miss God as He walks right before us. Unfortunately, at this time, the word of women isn't given much weight, which is part of why they discount it. And so when the men go and find the empty tomb, they feel like all is lost. But Jesus has something to say to them, and I think he has something to say to you too. Luke 24, and to me, continuing in verse 25, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Catch this. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for not believing what the women had to say, even though they should have given that some credit. He doesn't rebuke them for not being faithful enough. He doesn't rebuke them for, for not having perseverance and sticking around. He doesn't rebuke... You know, catch, what he re, catch this. Catch what he rebukes them for. For their lack of understanding of the Scriptures. In other words, what Jesus is rebuking them here is if, man, if you really, really knew what this book was about... you wouldn't have lost hope. If this is where you found your hope and your direction, listen to me, this, we're preaching to you now, not just them. If this is where you found your hope and direction, if this is where you decided what your life should look like, if this is where you got your authority, if this is what guided you, if this is what you turned to, if this is what you immersed yourself in, if this is what you made your home in, then you would have seen me right before you. You'd have known that I am the Son of God. You'd have known that the one who did this, because he says, was it not necessary? Another, I mean, he's kind of being a little sarcastic here. He kind of goes, look, a plain reading of the Old Testament would tell you this was going to happen. You read Psalm 22, you read Isaiah 53, you read these things, and you'd see that this was going to happen. You read Zechariah, you read these passages, you read the Old Testament, not just in one place, over 300 prophecies. And he's just going, listen, if you'd have just understood what you read, if you'd have just understood it, you'd have known. How do you think Jesus feels about our understanding of his scripture? 
If Jesus were to come to you in your quiet time, do you think he would rebuke you as well? If he could find you doing the quiet time that one day a week? If he had time to come in in that five minutes that you give him? Would he rebuke the way you treat the scriptures? Is your hope misplaced? What these disciples didn't see and what we often do our best to avoid is that God's plan almost always includes suffering. We, we do everything we can to avoid pain and suffering in our lives. But Jesus' half-brother said that when tribulation comes, you should rejoice because it, it shapes you, it helps you become who God desires you to be. Over and over and over, the Bible tells us that God's plan for refining you is, is, is not just roses and sunshine. But the end, the end is worth it. Now, if we truly believe, we're going to make you say it again. We say it all the time. We do what we believe. Say it. We do what we believe. If we truly believe that the God of the universe said, I'm going to come, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead, my Holy Spirit will then reside in you, you will go through suffering and trial, but that suffering and trial will bring you closer to me, and the closer you get to me, the more peace will rule over your heart, the more the fruit of the Spirit will emanate from you, that if we truly believed that, we wouldn't fight to avoid pain and suffering in our lives. And our preferences really, truly wouldn't matter. Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, talks about how God adopts us into his family as his children, and then talks about how we get the inheritance that Christ gets. But then it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, so it affirms that we are his children. But here's what it means to be a child of God. Listen to this. And if children, then heirs, meaning we get to inherit. This is great news. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We love that, but keep going. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, the reason these disciples missed it is their idea of the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom of God, was a temporary kingdom that avoided pain and persecution and oppression and put them back in a place of prominence. When we pursue the kingdom of God, if we're honest, so often what we're pursuing is a life with less pain. And that's not what the kingdom of God promises. Matter of fact, the kingdom of God promises that his way is upside down. It's kind of backwards from the way that we see the world. And that if we'll trust him in the pain, then we'll find ourselves in peace. This is why the church in the persecuted countries, the persecuted church in our world, is flourishing. It's also the reason churches in America are dying. Because we're doing everything we can to be as comfortable as possible. We're doing everything we can to fight against anything that would be frustrating, anything that would hurt us, anything that's not what we want. We, we constantly, all of us, every one of us, we're always fighting against this. 
We're not called to avoid pain. We're called to depend on Christ in it. Life in Christ is life abundant, but it is not without suffering. It is through the suffering and dependence on Jesus that we find the peace that only He can offer, that the world can't offer. Fortunately for those in Christ, suffering is not without a purpose. Suffering in Christ always has a purpose. Luke twenty four twenty seven, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Now this is a key verse that's going to set up where we're going for the rest of the year. Because for seven miles, the word of God, John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the word of God, that the word of God spent seven miles exposing the word of God to his people. And when we look at the scripture, we see that all things point to God's redemption of his people. If we aren't careful, though, we will miss what Jesus wants for us here. Like the disciples, the Pharisees, whom Jesus rebuked in John 5. John 5 says to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So I I hammer you all the time about the importance of of the Bible in your life, but, but catch my goal isn't for you to have a familiarity with Scripture. My goal isn't for you to know what the Bible says, just to know what the Bible says. My goal isn't for you to know these stories and to be smart enough to be able to pass a pop quiz. This isn't about memorization. This isn't about an intellectual grasping of things. But this is about, this is a book that God breathed to us to help us know Him and give us peace and hope. But that's found through here, because John in John 15, Jesus says, He who abides in me and my word, basically he who makes my their home here, finds their rest here, finds their purpose here, their peace here, not just intellectual agreement, but this really becomes the semi-truck that hits you every day. There you will find Jesus. And in finding Jesus, you will find peace that the world cannot give. Eternal life is not found in religion. Eternal life is not found in church attendance. Eternal life is not found in good behavior. Eternal life is not found in just a deep intellectual study of God's word and in theology and hermeneutics. Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ as revealed in his word. This morning in your Bible study groups, you looked at Peter's words in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. The main idea for your Bible study group this morning, and if you weren't in a Bible study group, I would pl- just implore you, please, make the effort to be in a Bible study group on Sunday mornings. Your, your main idea in Bible study group was our salvation was promised by the prophets and fulfilled in Christ. And the more fully we understand our salvation, the more deeply we will appreciate Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 as you study this morning, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things 
that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. In other words, that was a lot of words. And in other words, it was revealed that everything those prophets wrote, I don't, I don't think, I think based off of this, I don't think when David wrote Psalm 22, he knew the details of the crucifixion. And he was thinking about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will one day as Messiah come down and he'll be crucified in this manner. I don't know what he was thinking. What Peter tells us here is that it was revealed that what they were really doing is revealing what God would do. What they were really doing is revealing what God would do. Now towards the end here, do not our hearts burn. Luke 24, 28 through 35. I love that phrase, did not our hearts burn. I have no uh, ideas of grandeur that you ever say that walking out of here. But I would pray that that would become true as you spend time in his word. So they draw near to the village to where they were going. And he acted as if he were going farther. This sounds deceptive. I just want to clarify. It's not like a he was pretending he was going to go further. Like Basically, he was just like, all right, guys, and like he was just—he was going to continue. He was going to continue walking, um, but they urged him strongly, saying, "Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent." So he went and stayed with them. It, basically, it's getting late, and not a good idea to be out on the road by yourself right now because it's starting to get late, and it's dangerous to be walking when it gets late. When he was at table with them. He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to him. Now this is, so what's going on here? This is not the Lord's Supper or anything like that. This is just like, so when, when you would gather as a Jewish family and you would come get around the table to eat, you'd get to the table. Whoever was like the superior, the, the senior spiritual person, the, the father of the home or something like that would, would, would start with a blessing and a breaking of the bread. And so Jesus just jumps in and assumes that role because if Jesus is in the room, Right? Like, he is the senior superior to anything. So Jesus is in the room, so he breaks the bread. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? This is incredible. This is mind-blowing. We don't know. Maybe, did they see the nail-scarred hands when he broke the bread and offered it to them? Did it, like, the Holy Spirit just, boom, showed him. Boom, it's Jesus. And then he was, boop, gone. What? This is an insane story. And then they go, okay, that was crazy. Wasn't it, wasn't it, and they start going, I mean, wasn't it weird when he's telling us the story of Jonah and he was telling us about how Jonah was about being in the, in the belly for three days and how he would be in the belly for three days. And man, didn't it like just ignite something up in you when he was talking to you? Like, didn't it just, whoo, like, didn't you start like wanting to dance, getting a little Pentecostal on the road for seven miles? Like something, something started to happen in you. Like something just started to, to happen while he was talking. But catch what they were saying. While he opened up the scriptures, when we will live in this, this living word, when we'll make this our life and our home, I'm telling you, your hearts will burn. 
We live in a country where many of us have eight copies of this at our house. And it's a chore to open it. Where the church is flourishing, where the church is flourishing, many don't even have a full copy. There are villages where they'll get one Bible. It'll get smuggled in. And, and different people get a different section and they memorize that section. Hate to be the guy that got Leviticus or Lamentations. But you memorize that. And then together as a village, because you know probably it's going to get found and it's probably going to get confiscated. And when it does, you're not worried because it's in your heart. You know, you know this part. He knows that part. So you gather together and you get to share God's word with each other. Nick Ripkin tells a story in one of his books of delivering Bibles to this underground church in China and how as they opened them, they wept with joy because they got to hold God's word. In seminary, I had to go in a class. I had, when I was getting my master's, I had to go experience different kinds of worship services in different faiths. And I went to this really liberal, I thought, I'm going to go as off the charts as I can go just to see what happens. And so I went to this really liberal Jewish synagogue. It was really weird. But they did this one thing that was fascinating to me that I loved. When it was time to, to look at God's word, when it was time to look at the Torah, it was, it was in a cabinet. And it was locked. I don't know why it was locked, but it was locked. But what was cool was they opened it up. And the rabbi, she grabs that Torah and they start singing this like really lively, exciting song in Hebrew. I don't know what it was, but it's in Hebrew. It's really exciting. Everybody's getting excited. I mean, it's like, this is the most deadpan service I've ever been to. But then all of a sudden now, people are, they're moving a little bit, like as much as they could. Like they're moving a little bit and getting a little excited. And she walked around, the rabbi walked around and held that tour out. And every single person in there kissed it. And they praised Yahweh for the opportunity to open the word of God and look at it. There were a lot of things wrong about that service, but that was right. This thing has the power to hit you harder than a semi. I mean, this thing, listen, this thing has the power to take you through your darkest moments, your darkest thoughts, your most hopeless things, this, this book points us to the God who said he would die and rise from the dead and then did it. And he loves you. And he is a loving father that wants your best for you. But we so often put our hope in other things. And so they got so excited. And just when they'd said, hey, it's too late, Jesus. You need to stay here. It's getting dark. They don't even consider that anymore. Immediately, immediately, they run the seven miles back to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what the seven-mile record was in Jerusalem at that point, but my guess is it, it got beaten that night because the God of the universe had walked seven miles with them, exposing the word. And then when he broke the bread, they knew it was him. And then he vanished. And they thought, we got to get back and let everybody know. 
But here's the, the funny part to me is I think for seven miles, they're probably going, man, what are you, I'm gonna, man, I can't wait to get in there. I, let me talk first. No, let me talk first. I mean, I'm going to say it like this. We're going to drop it. I'm going to be like, whoa, he's risen. And then the guy's like, nah, man, what you need to say is this. And they, but then they come in and they beat him to the punch. They get in, and as soon as they get in with the 11, the 11 go, he is risen indeed. He's appeared to Simon. Talk about stealing your thunder. Seven miles, you're waiting for this moment. But they're so excited, it doesn't even slow them down. The Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let me ask you, as we close. Does your heart burn for the glory of Jesus in your life? This has been a heavy one, and I'm not intending just to come down on you and make you feel guilty. I don't want to make you feel guilty. I want you, I don't want you to, to miss what's right before you, like these two disciples did for seven miles. I would, I would encourage you to abandon everything in your life for him. What does it mean to abandon? I mean, don't hold on to anything, for he who tries to save his life will lose it, but he who is willing to lose his life for the sake of Jesus Christ will find peace. The reason you haven't found peace is because there are things you're clinging to. And for whatever reason, they're so important to you. And if you don't let go, you may very well miss the peace that Jesus has for you. But know this, letting go almost always leads to a road of suffering. The road to a strong Christian faith is never, listen to me, with no exception, comfortable. Stop pursuing a comfortable walk with Jesus. Instead, pursue a supernatural peace. Pursue to find abundant life. Imagine a life so ruled, a heart so ruled by the peace of Christ, a life so abundant that when the trials came, it didn't shake you. Imagine building your house on the rock of the teachings of Jesus so much that when the storms come, They hit you, the wind blows. It's not that you don't feel it, but it doesn't shake you. This is what Jesus offers, not church attendance, not a place to go and sing some songs and listen to some guy talk and yell at you for an hour today. He offers you peace that the world cannot offer. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would not miss you as you draw near because we misplace our hope in other things that cannot fulfill what we need. Lord, for any of us that have not put our hope in you alone, Lord, I I pray that we would with boldness abandon all today in pursuit of you. 
Lord, we need you. Today, if we hear your voice, let us not harden our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want you to take this opportunity to respond as, as the Lord leads. <clears throat> you, you may, I, I would, I, listen, I would encourage you to be so bold as to not keep it private. I want you to understand spiritual growth does not happen in, in isolation. If God's putting something in your heart, he's working on something with you, I would, I would encourage you to, to find a friend. If you don't have a friend, man, I'd just be bold enough to grab somebody here. Come up front, talk to me, talk to Chris, talk to somebody, talk to Chuck, talk to Zach, talk to somebody. Grab somebody that, that you know cares about you and just say, would you pray with me? There's some things that... I need to let go of. There's some things that I'm clinging on to I need to let go of. Maybe even come down here and pray and make it visible enough. If you're sitting there and look, at you're, you're coasting, you're at this great place, then pray for whoever's up here. My guess is you're not. My guess is all of us have these things. Every one of us, myself included, have these things that we, we're just holding on to. So maybe if you don't even know what that is, pray that God would reveal that to you. Pray that God would speak to you and let you know what, what you're holding on to and forfeiting the peace that God has for you? Or maybe today, for the first time, you are marveling at the amazing love of Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe you're so broken and you realize I desperately need somebody to intervene. Listen, there's nothing more I would like to do than to introduce you to my Jesus and how he can save you. There's nothing better. I would encourage you, abandon everything today. Do it physically. Do it, I mean, just don't, don't just in your mind make a little mental note. I'm just gonna be honest, it doesn't work. It doesn't get you anywhere. You're gonna forget that before you leave the parking lot. Take action we do what we believe. Come, come figuratively lay it down at the stairs this morning and pray and beg God to take it from you and give you the peace that only he can give. Let's stand, let's respond, let's pray together, let's sing, whatever it is that God is putting on your hearts. Respond obediently, boldly, trusting in him and him alone.